This is an ABC podcast. In 1960, in a housing project in the city of Detroit, USA, a teenage girl called Mary Wilson started a singing group. Mary put the group together with her friends Florence Ballard and Diana Ross. They were called the Primettes to start with. Then they signed with the local label, Motown, and it was thought they needed a classier name, and so they went with the Supremes. For a while, the Supremes struggled to get a hit song. They were even nicknamed the No-Hit Supremes. Can you believe it? Then with new songwriters came Where Did Our Love Go? And that went to number one. That was followed by Baby Love and Stop in the Name of Love. The Supremes were a sensation. They sang in perfect harmony, they wore expensive gowns, and they knew how to move in them too. They were the only group to give the Beatles any serious grief in the charts. By 1970, Diana and Florence were gone. So Mary Wilson reformed the Supremes around herself, and they had another string of hits like Up the Ladder to the Roof and Stoned Love. In the 1980s, Mary Wilson wrote her best-selling memoir called Dream Girl, My Life as a Supreme. And despite all the madness and a bit of sadness too, it was obvious that for Mary, the whole thing was a joy and the realisation of her girlhood dreams. Mary Wilson came on Conversations when she was touring Australia back in 2010. And she was so funny and charming and generous and so down to earth for someone who'd reach the very peaks of global stardom. We all fell a bit in love with Mary that day. Last week we heard that Mary had died at the age of 76. And so we thought we'd bring you that conversation with her from 2010. When I introduced Mary, she really liked the way that I summed up her whole life and career. <laughs> Mary Wilson, welcome to Conversations. My goodness, I couldn't have said it better than that. <laughs> Good. We don't need to do any. I can, we can go home now, can't <laughs> oh, we? I'm, I can go home now. I've summarised your whole career, haven't I? <laughs> yes, but uh, that's great. That's a good summary. Ah, Thank but you. The in-between bits. <laughs> good, aren't they? Most fun, yes. That's what I tell people, you know, about it's not the goal, it's not the uh, the end that's so important, but it's all of the little, the, the moments in between getting towards the goal that's most important. It's the journey. Yeah. Now, I have to say from what I've written, you struck me as an unusually wise figure for, for the world of music. <laughs> you seem to be very stable. Where does that come from, Mary? Where, Wait, does that come across? It does. It Let does, Let me actually. freak out right now. <laughs> no, but I, I am. I'm pretty, I'm pretty normal. I say this to my daughter. She says, Mom, you're not normal. <laughs> but I really am as, for, as far as entertainment goes, you know. I don't know. I think it's where I came from. My mom, you know, my, my, my background. Uh, I was the eldest of three children. And uh, I was the one who always had to wash the dishes, to clean up, to do this. You know, so I think I am pretty normal, yes. Reading what you've said over the years, media in the past have tried to beat up your disagreements with Diana Ross or it was mm-hmm. such as they, they weren't really even there, actually. Mm-hmm. And I keep hearing your voice in my research arguing for a more nuanced version mm-hmm. of reality that's probably not as dramatic or as exciting as people make it out wow, today. Wow, you're pretty smart. Do oh, you know well, that? I just did a you know, I've been trying to tell people that all my life, and they just don't get it. <laughs> of course, because that's what life's really like, yeah. of course. Well, uh, it's amazing because people will look at our old album covers. I thought I had one here, but I don't. And they'll say, which one are you? I'm like, in the middle. I was always in the middle. So I was always the one who kind of kept the balance. 
And I never, I don't think I went out to do that, but that's just where it turned out. So maybe that's who I am. I don't know. Now, you weren't <laughs> born in Detroit. You were actually born in, in Mississippi. Mississippi. And your folks, south. and in the south, and your folks moved north. From what I understand, that was a period of great migration yes. of African Americans at that time, going yes. from the south. A lot of ex servicemen escaping the Jim Crow laws in the mm-hmm, south mm-hmm. got sick of being second class citizens. So they went to Detroit where they could get auto jobs. Work, work. You know, it was all about work. And in fact, in the south, uh, where most of the blacks at that time were living because, you know, slavery and were brought up for, over for that. And so they, they lived on the plantations. They worked there in the South. And once uh, the blacks were freed, then, of course, they wanted to go where work was, where they could get paid. And the auto in- industry was, of course, Detroit. And uh, there was that great migration. It was during, like, the 40s, the 50s, and all that stuff. And my parents were one of them that moved uh, north from from the South. And uh, it, it was great because we were able to go back and visit the South on the summers because we would visit our grandparents who still lived there. But we had this new freedom in the North. Was that scary? Because that's what happened to Emmett Till, wasn't it? He was mm-hmm. a boy whose family gone mm-hmm. north. They went south, and he said something a little impertinent in the south on holiday. Well, and, and, yes. You know, and did you ever feel that sense, or were you just too young to know what was going on when you went to the you south know, holidays? You know, people ask us that question, did we know? Let me put it back to you like this. If you were who you were now, and you wanted to go and eat at any restaurant or go and... And, and drink out of a public water fountain, and you were told by law that you could not do that, and that you were an inferior person, of course you would know it. No. And uh, a lot of people say, well, why are black people a little so edgy or angry? But it's because you were brought up by your parents who always told you to be careful, because you could get, uh, you know, if you said the wrong thing, you could get killed. So this is what we grew up under, knowing this, but being in in the North now, um, you know, you didn't have that same kind of pressure because our neighborhoods were all sequestered within their own ethnic groups. So you didn't venture into the other, uh, you know, the white neighborhood. Uh, And so you didn't really get as much of that Southern mentality um, that our parents had grown up with. But if you happened to go back, to the South, and you had this sort of, they say, they they would call it uppity, you had this uppity kind of attitude that you were, you know, an okay person, they reminded you, you are black, you are a Negro, and you cannot do that. And I've often said, uh, since uh, President Obama has gone into office, that if our parents could, could, you know, see this now, they'd all be saying, hallelujah! But Emmett Till was one of those people who happened to go back down south and uh, had the attitude, this freedom that we, this new freedom that we had found. And, and you know, he said something and he was killed for it. So that was a, an example of what could happen to you. Those times, fortunately, have passed now by law. You know, we are citizens just like anyone else. Now, can we talk about your mum? We were talking about her briefly before we yes, went on air. Johnny May. <laughs> Johnny May. Johnny May is my mom. Was you my you mom. said she she was dyslexic before we went on air, and she couldn't read nor, nor write. Right. I, I've read that she's one of your the most important people in your life, of oh, course. Yes. But you didn't know she was your mum until you oh, were nine. Yes, yes. I, yeah, I thought I had a normal childhood, and then I realized that uh, my mom and my dad were not my mom and my dad. They were my uncle and my aunt. And I didn't know that. And uh, I didn't realize that my mom had given me to my aunt and uncle 
because she couldn't, you know, she couldn't read and write, so she had these three children, and she couldn't really take care of them at the time. Uh, so she gave me to them because they couldn't have children, and I was too young to know. And when I was like uh, about eight, she came back into my life, and I had seen her, but I thought she was my aunt. And they told me that. Uh, you know, she she was my mom, and How it really did rock your world. It did, and in fact, I wrote about it. I wrote about this in uh, when I was in the twelfth grade, and my teacher, Mr. Boone, is the person who's responsible for me uh, uh, um, writing my books. He said to me, he says, Miss Wilson, he says, uh, I know I'm. You, you think you're in this little group called the Primettes, he says, and you think you're a star, he says. But if I get you in my class, he says, and I will have you in my English class, you will see how much of a star you are. So I had him every from the from from the freshman year up until. Like ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth, I had him every year, <laughs> and so now you know we're becoming kind of famous. And he says, oh, "Miss Wilson, I know you want to graduate from school, but uh, unless you pass my class, you will not be graduating and touring with that little group." And so I had to write this paper, and I did. I wrote the paper about my confusion as a young child, uh, being raised by, you know, people and then finding out they weren't my mom and my dad and I was really very, very angry and I wrote this. And I didn't even know how important it was, but I did. That eventually became the first chapter of my first book, Dream Girl, My Life is a Supreme. He said it was a brilliant paper and that I should consider becoming a writer. So I looked at him like he was crazy. He's like, look, I just want you to pass me. <laughs> I don't think, I'm not thinking about it being a writer. I want to be a singer. I want to get down to Motown. But I, obviously, it, it made some kind of impact on me and I started keeping a diary at that point. Oh, really? Do you still keep a diary? Yeah, well, that's how I wrote and finished writing my book. <laughs> Your whole book. And even to this day, though, do you keep it? I do. Not as much as I used to. I don't do it every day. I used to do it every day. Now, probably uh, two or twice a week, you know, I'll write something. I'll capture the whole week, you know. Growing up in the Brewster Douglas housing projects in Detroit, you were friends with Florence Ballard and Diane Ross. Have I got, have I got this romantic picture in my head, Mary? I, I'm imagining people singing all the time. Walking around that, but singing, 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 because yes, because they were sending out talent scouts to hear people singing in these housing projects. Do you, do you know uh, Fonzie? That 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 television. Happy days. Happy days. Happy days. Fonzie, yeah, yeah. It it was kind of like that, uh, you know, where it was all about. It was like that. It was so when I moved in with my mom, we moved to the Booster Project, the inner city, because I I had. I had grown up outside in the suburbs and all. We moved to the inner city, and it was very much like that. People were standing in all around the streets just singing and in the stairwells, and, and that was the best spot for singing because of the echo. And <laughs> But people really were singing So everyone all sang the all the time. Everyone sang, yes. So it was just this music throughout all the time. Music. A, a cappella, unaccompanied music. Unaccompanied, oh sure. And that's why you had the doo-wop, you know, the really the harmonic uh, groups that were very popular. And now there's not a lot of harmonics around there. Florence Ballard brought you into the primates. Mm -hmm. And looking at footage of her sometimes performing on stage or talking with uh, TV shows, she was funny. Florence had a great humor. She actually, I used to think of her like Lucy, you know, Lucy and Arnaz and all, and uh, Pearl Bailey. Florence could say, you could say something, and then she could re give you a, a retort, you know, or a reply, and it would just 
Florian, you know, I, I'd always later say, oh, I should have said that. But she always had the right thing to come out. We were doing a, one show when she says, Diane said one thing. And then Florence just walked up to the mic and said, honey, we is terrific. And the audience just laughed. It was like her delivery. It was her delivery was so funny. Yeah, I, I saw an interview and Diane was saying, oh, I, you know, I'm under a lot of pressure to get to get married, but the other girls won't let me. And then Florence mm-hmm. says, uh, it comes to me. The other girls are saying, go right ahead, honey. <laughs> yeah, that, that's kind of way, yeah, that's kind of way Florence was. So you start mm-hmm. singing together and you become the primettes because you were, you were kind of like the equivalent of the primes, which was a male group at the time. I want to play one of your early singles here, which is Buttered Popcorn. I just yes. found this lying around. There's only one word to describe this. I mean, it takes, it's cute, Mary. It's cute, cute, yeah, cute, yeah, this song. Yeah, one of the no-hit Supreme songs. One of the no-hit Supreme songs. <laughs> With Florence Ballard out front singing lead. Primettes, which was soon to become the Supreme, singing Buttered Popcorn. And and guess what? Guess what? There were four of us on that record. There were four Bob, of you. Yes, Bob. See, very few people know that. Uh, Barbara Martin was still in the group. We were still basically the Primettes, but we, I think we had changed our name, yes, to the Supremes, but we were still basically under the formation of the Primettes with the four of us. And the fourth member left to just have a family life, didn't she? Yes, yes, yes. But she was there through this record. She was. She recorded about... Oh, and a whole album, Meet the Supremes. She was pretty much on that entire album. So you're kind of like these girls who are on the up and up. And an awful, dreadful thing happened to Florence around this time. She was sexually assaulted. Yes, and yes. How did you get wind that something had happened to her? Did she come well, out and tell you? Well, Flo, this was before we actually went to Motown, just before we went to Motown. And what happened was we were together every day, every minute. We were like such great friends. Uh, and so we were on the phone talking about boyfriends, you know, or as soon as we got out of school, we run and call each other and say, what are you going to wear tonight? What are you going to do this? You know, so we were really very, very close. And then all of a sudden we didn't hear from Florence for like an entire month. And we live right around the corner. We go by her house. Diane and I would go by her house and, you know, try to get to call her. And, and, and we just couldn't couldn't reach her. And eventually we were very frustrated, to be very honest with you, because we were so close. Eventually she came by and she told Told us what had happened, and she was she was another person at this time. She was only, I think, fourteen. I think she was fourteen at the time. Oh. We were all like fourteen. 13, 14, yeah, 14. And uh, so it was really devastating for her. Her parents were really protecting her because we couldn't figure out, wait a minute, Florence, Florence hasn't called us. Why hasn't she called us? What's going on? What did we do? We thought something we had done. Then we realized it was something had gone on with her. Um, they did find the, the, the person. And this was a person that she knew from knew from the neighborhood. And, it and was, trusted. And trusted. And it was just devastating. I must bring out, it's also... You got to understand back in those days, people, when they had like tuberculosis or something like that, you know, they didn't tell people. It was very embarrassing. It was a, some, a stigma to it. Nowadays, people, you know, they know about, they'll send you to psychiatrists. Oh, I'm going to see my, you know, psychiatrist today, my, you know, <laughs> whatever. Back then, you didn't want anyone to know. So instead of Florence getting help that she needed, they were protecting her and keeping her away from everyone. So eventually, you know, she came by and she told us what happened. And, and we were we were sitting there like devastated just hearing about it because we were all virgins, you know at that time so it affected her her entire life 
even when we became famous, started making the records, she got better, but she was never, ever the same person again. So you became the Supremes, and name was picked out of a hat, wasn't it? Is that how it worked? Out of a hat? Kind of, but not, not, not literally. That, um, what happened was, when we went to um, uh, Mr. Gordy to... Uh, sign the contracts. Well, before that, he said, uh, listen, I'm going to sign you girls, but I don't like the name Primets. You know, you got to get a new name. Well, we were like, we don't want to get, no one's going to know us if we get a new name. But no one knew us anyway, right? Just <laughs> in the neighborhood. <laughs> but, um, so anyway, then the day came that we were to sign the contracts and Mr. Gordy said, okay, we'll sign the contracts. What is your new name? We're like, we had forgotten about it, kind of. But we had asked, you know, family, friends, and whatever, what do you think we should be called? And we all had our little list and that, like that. But on that day, Florence was the only one who had brought her list. And, uh, oh, but she said, well, I, I, I have a, I have it. And she said, I like this name, Supremes. And so that was the only name that we had, so we had to take it. We didn't like it at all. You didn't like it? Oh, no, no. Why not? Because, see, girls were always called Ets. Or L's. L or right? L's, yes. Mm-hmm. So donate that. The gender was very important back in those days. Uh, and so we we wanted something like that. But Supremes sounded like a building. You know, it didn't sound like a... Because <laughs> we were girly girls. What can I say? I'm still a girly girl. At 66, I'm a girly girl. So we just didn't like the name, but we had to take it because we were signing the contract on that day. Well, it's a great name. Well, now is a, yeah. now is a great well, name. And I can say that with all the hindsight in the world, can't when I? When you're 16 yeah. years old, it's like, and everybody's the Chantels, the Sherrells, the Ikeettes. It was all girls, you right. see. The Supremeettes wouldn't be quite right, would yeah, it? Yeah, right, no. right, right, right. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so you had real trouble getting getting a hit. You became, as I said, the, the no-hit Supremes. Well, you know, what I, you know what? I kind of brought that up, and everyone's picked up on it. I've noticed that since I said that, people have picked up on it. But it wasn't thing a thing that people said to you to your face. It was like we were the first girl group at Motown. Then of course the Marvelettes came, got a hit, please Mr. Postman, Martha and the Vandellas, who were the Vandellas at the time, they they got a hit. And so we still didn't have a hit. And behind our backs, you know, they were like the no hits of friends. They can't get a it hit does. record. Yeah, right. They're no good. <laughs> I was the only one who had the nerve <laughs> to kind of write say that out in public. So I mean I it's kind of like I kinda of got back at them and then when we had our first hit records, hey there you go. There you go. Here we are. And there you were on stage with Where Did Our Love Go? And you're wearing these amazing gowns. You look fantastic. You move fantastic. <laughs> you sound great. It's the whole thing. It's all there on stage. I- I'm just wondering, you were obviously really committed to this idea, and it was a kind of simple and clear thing you pursued right from the get-go, particularly for you, Mary, I can say. I can say. Was that the picture you had in your head? It's a kind yes. of a... Yes. You yes. wearing a great gown with your best friends on stage yes. with the number one song. That's yes. it? Well, when I met Florence and Diane and Betty at the time, I knew that I had met the other parts of myself. It, it it was so complete. We were very, very complete group. As you and I were talking off the air, we had this the dynamics we had with Florence being the soulful one, Diane being the pop, and I was like in the middle with the cutesy kind of ballady voice. We were really a perfect group. Harmonically, we had great harmonies. So, yes, I, I think that we were the only ones who knew how great we were. <laughs> in fact, when Barry Gordy first turned us down, he says, come back and see me. This is before the contracts were signed. He said, come back to see me after you graduate from high school. But we didn't realize he just was trying to get rid of us. Anyway, we walked out the door and Florence said, hmm, you can't be that great if you didn't know how great we were. 
on air, online, and on the ABC Listen app. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Mary, I was playing Where Did Our Love Go, your first number one hit. What did you think of that song when you first heard it? We hated that song at first, you know. In fact, I remember crying and saying, and I told Eddie Holland when they brought the song to me, I said, Eddie, listen, we need a hit record. We, this is not a hit record. He says, Mary, trust me, this is a hit record. It's there in the first four bars. You hear we, it. We, did, we thought it was boring. We thought it was very simple. What we found out later was that Holland Dozier Holland, who Barry Gordy had just put with us, or we, he had just put us with them, he told us, he says, listen, you girls are really dedicated. I'm going to put you with my top writing team, uh, Eddie Holland, Brian Holland, and Lamont Dozier. And we're like, yes, now we can get a hit record, right? So anyway, they brought us a couple of records, which was great, Run, 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 and When the Love Light Shines Through His Eyes. Now those we recorded, and they were like bubbling under top 100. I think they went up in, into the top cash box, you know, top 100. So we were like on our way. Then they bring Where Did Our Love Go to us? And they said, this is, this is a hit and we want you girls to sing it. We listened to it, and we're like, no, we want something like Martha and the Vandellas, you know. We want we want something really soulful. And they said, no, no, trust us, this is going to be it. I cried, and I told Eddie, I said, Eddie, you don't understand. Our parents were going to send us to college. They saved money for that. Uh, we just graduated from school, you know, and we had all these records that weren't hits. We need to get a hit record. And he said, trust, it's going to be hit. I cried. I cried. So, of course, this record comes along. We recorded it. Florence and I were like, all we were saying was, baby, baby. And, we're, you know, we had been good singers singing, you know, four freshman kind of songs. And we're like, this is, we're not singing. Baby, baby. That's Ooh, it. baby, baby. That's all I said. And so, anyway, the record became a number one. And as you said, no, I, I, they, I was laughed at. You cannot pick a record. Let us do the job. You girls just sing. We're like, okay. <laughs> and then, bang, you know, you've got baby love. Baby. Then stop in the name of love. Number one after number Five one. Five consecutive number, one. number ones. And I just said, the Whitney Houston, I think, broke our record at seven consecutives. Now, when you are in a situation where you're having hit after hit after hit like that mm-hmm. and becoming that famous mm-hmm. that quickly, it sounds like you were ready for it. Well, it wasn't but, but, fast now, Richard. Well, they followed each other fast. But, I mean, I mean, our career wasn't fast. Remember, we, we started yeah, in 59. Were the Springs, yeah. We didn't get the hit record until 64, so we had a lot of time. Yeah, well, that's true. That's it was true. an overnight success. So you were ready for it when it happened. Nonetheless, we were. We when were. when you experience success at that level, I'm, I'm sure it's something like having 40,000 volts of electricity pass through your body. I don't know. I've never had that. Well, <laughs> neither have I, but I'm looking for a helpful analogy there. But everything, but yes. your life becomes very weird, and it has to become weird because people aren't normal when they're around you. All of a sudden, people are, are weird and hysterical yes. every time they meet you. Yes. How did you keep on an even keel during that, that period? And did you stay on an even keel? Did you go a little crazy yourself? No, not no, not in the beginning. I think in the, uh, the, the 70s and 80s, we all went a little crazy. <laughs> but in the 60s, no, we were really, we were, I'll give you a good story. Uh, we were very square, the Supremes. 
And uh, we went to see the Beatles. Well, we were working in New York, and they were doing the Shea Stadium or something like that. So our uh, publicity people said, let's get these two major groups together, right? And so they planned the whole thing, and, and they said, well, Beatles can't get out of their hotel, but we'll take you over. So we go over in this huge limousine, pull up in front of the hotel where they were staying, and all these screaming girls came going, ah! And as soon as they opened the door and saw it was like girls, they like ran the other way because they were looking for the Beatles. Anyway, so we're escorted up to the Beatles, um, you know, suite. And it was dark and smoky in there. And we were, we had on our little gloves, you know, our little hats. And we were all cute. We were like Jackie Onassis cute, you know, because we were really sharp little girls. Buffon heads. Oh, oh, yeah, we were beehives. We were like really yeah. cool. We were like ever so chic. And so when we went in there, all kind of they were all rock and rollers and they it was like dark and people were like in the corner and this and that and we were like wow where we thought it was gonna be you know this huge cocktail kind of party with the glamour and then this and it wasn't all that so after a while we asked our pr people we said uh can we get out of here and so so um george harrison and i became friends after that and, and he said and we were talking about the meeting he says yeah and we kept saying when are these square girls gonna leave because they're killing our style you know what I mean? <laughs> so just i said all that to say we were very different from most of the other people out there singing square yes. girls over the years i read somewhere and the, correct me if i'm wrong here that you've been romantically linked over the years with tom jones steve mcqueen and Flip Wilson. I cannot think of three more different men than Tom Jones, Steve McQueen, and Flip Wilson. It's like a car. They all have four wheels, right? (laughs) It doesn't matter to me. You know, it's it's about the chemistry. It's about the, you know, it's about the chemistry with the man, to me. So I don't care what they look like or well i do really but they got you know. four wheels <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a good one huh oh well so there, there was something new with the supremes when they arrived on the scene is you you were specifically glam you were very mm. very glam we were girly girls yeah <laughs> stylish all those things i would just wonder who's pulled you up over the years to tell you that they were inspired by you seeing you on oh TV. yes lots of them and, and i'm really proud of that i'm really proud of the fact that i have people like whoopie girl goldberg oprah winfrey um, that's just name dropping but i mean Normal girls, teachers, principals come up and say to me, and I'm sure they say this to Diane as well, um, you know, when we were growing up and we saw black women on TV, glamorous, articulate, and da-da-da-da, we were so like, wow, that means I can do that too. So I think we really did inspire a lot of people because prior to that, you didn't see a lot of black people on American TV unless they were maids and and that type of thing. And then all of a sudden to see headliners being black and women and not just one but three at the same time so it's it's a great honor to know that whatever you went out to do you achieved it but also it has helped other people you were performing to you know huge crowds and performing to royalty were you being mm-hmm. treated like royalty were you treated well at this time when we started traveling yeah. if you, you know the beatles went to america and around the world and we did the same thing so it was uh, yes we were treated ext- i mean i remember going to england <laughs> And uh, we met the Queen Mother. We did a command performance. And it was uh, Princess Margaret, Princess Anne, Prince Charles, and all kind of other people. We were on the show with Inglebert Humperdinck, Diane Carroll. And it was a lot of people, a lot of us up there. And, and, you know, I had this great picture that's shown everywhere. I might even use it on my next cover of my book. I'm, right, I'm doing a coffee table book on the, on the Supremes gowns. So anyway, this, this picture has us in these great pearl 
uh, sequined gowns that weighed 30 pounds each, and we're being received by the uh, Queen Mother. And that was like, that was such a, you know, here we are, three little black girls from the Brewster Projects meeting the Queen Mother. But anyway, my gown collection is on tour in Great Britain. And it started out in, what is it, Victoria and Albert's Museum. It's, gone, it's been to five or six other museums in England. Is it coming to Australia? I hope I so. It's a, it's like 50 of our most beautiful gowns. You kept them all, did you? I uh, did. What would you, you knew that they would be no, important? No, 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 I, I got lucky. <laughs> you got lucky. <laughs> well, you know, everyone left the group. Diane left, Florence left, well, Florence didn't left, she, leave. she was put out of the group. But, you know, I was the only one there. And the gown stayed with me because I still continued the group on, as you said in your introduction. And uh, so they kept piling up as we bought new ones. And eventually I have all these gowns in storage. I'm like, what am I going to do with them? And then it came to me. So I had the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum in Cleveland curate them for me. And then we, we sent them off to England. So hopefully they'll come here. Who knows? Mary, you're just talking about the time then when Diana left the group and mm -hmm. uh, she was being sent on a solo career. And Florence was sent out of the group, mm -hmm. like, which, is mm -hmm. kind of, which is really tragic. Life was not fair, and it's no. not fair a lot of times. Uh, and, I, and I've often said that uh, poor Florence, you know, had she been, just been able to hold on. Uh, that's why when we see friends, relatives, whatever are in trouble, certain things going on, those of us who know these people should try to get them help you can't do it yourself because we tried to help Flo, but she needed professional help and that's what we need to do you know, we have so much of that going on today against young people, so you know, we've got to do a lot better job we being adults in protecting our young and then getting them what they need to recover because the recovery is very very difficult and you can't money cannot hide it or uh, Florence is a prime example fame cannot hide it because it'll eat away at you at that point you were the sole remaining member of the Supremes you'd sort of been on this trajectory and living in the moment all the time but uh, you were a little older by then and you were ready to, to take stock what did you resolve in that in that time before you re reformed the Supremes well we never stopped we never stopped. That was the thing about it, you know. Uh, when we had our farewell performance with Diane, February, no, it was January 1970. And uh, Jean Terrell had already been chosen by Barry Gordy. And fortunately, I, I loved uh, Jean Terrell, who he had chosen. So we just, we were recording before Diane even left the group. So we never, ever stopped. And yes, you know, it was at that time when I realized... Um, I needed to really find my space in entertaining because I enjoyed it so much. And I'm like, I can't allow, just because other people's dreams changed, I can't allow that to dictate to me what I'm to do. So I've got to, you know, pull myself up and and, and, and start stepping out front and taking the, the lead. But until that time, Jean Terrell was a great person. We had... Stoned Love with Gene singing lead up the ladder to the roof and I think you had said those were some of your favorites yeah they are uh, uh, yeah. yeah so we had you know and Floyd Joy we had we had a lot of good records with Gene Terrell so I'm very happy at that time but that's when I started singing again and, and had to train myself and it was very difficult but I, I finally did, did it and I think I'm a great performer now and a great singer which I wasn't before I want to play Up the Ladder to the Roof because this is my favorite Supreme song. I thought song. that was your favorite. It yes. is my favorite Supreme song. Yes. It's a lovely, Cindy Bird's song. song was in the group by then.
This is from the 70s, early mm -hmm, 70s, when mm -hmm. there was, politics were kind of intense at the time. You know, Martin Luther King had been assassinated, yes. Malcolm X had been assassinated. It seemed like harking back to another more optimistic time then. Optimistic, time. yes, yeah. yes, yes. So I'm, I'm very pleased with, as I mentioned, Frank Wilson, who produced us during this time. And all of the songs were very, like, Stoned Love. Yeah. And Stoned Love, actually, a lot of times the radio stations didn't want to play it because they thought it was about drugs. And it's not. It's just like Up the Ladder to the Roof. A real solid love is what they're talking about. So people didn't get it right off the bat. Yeah. You know? So is this a good time in your life when you're producing these songs? For me, it wasn't a good time in terms of me doing what I wanted to do. It was good that we found our niche as the Supremes after Diane left because that was a big thing, being the, one of the, being the top female group in the world and not being able to continue at that level would have been devastating. But as I mentioned, when Frank Wilson showed us these songs, I knew this was good, but I also knew I needed to prepare myself for what I was going to do after. So it wasn't a good time because of that and also because I no longer had my two dear friends, Flo and Diane. You wrote your book, Dream Girl, My Life as a Supreme. That mm -hmm. was the biggest selling showbiz memoirs of all time. Mm -hmm. Huge seller that was. Mm -hmm. And then the movie Dream Girl came out. Mm -hmm. And I could see when it came out, it kind of irritated a lot of people in Motown, did it? Because mm -hmm. it wasn't, no, no names were mentioned, but it was kind of, kind mm -hmm. of based on It was kind of the like Supremes. they stole our identities yeah. and didn't give us the real credit for it. And I think that there was a little, yeah, you know, because it's almost like you write a great work of art and then someone comes and, and, and takes it and does something else with it. Changes but, the name. And yeah, and yeah. you don't get the credit. So it was that feeling, even though I still enjoyed the movie, I loved the movie, I loved the play. In fact, it would have been great had they just paid me. <laughs> 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 they didn't give us the credit, you know, but it was three girls. It was four girls in the beginning. One was put out like Flo was, you know, one was a great singer like Flo. So it was a lot of similarities, but they just, you know. So Smokey Robinson was annoyed by the characterization yes. of the Berry Gordy type character. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I don't know what's your take on that. Was he as manipulative and as deceitful as uh, the movie made his uh, No, 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 uh, no, no, no. Uh, that, it, it was, you know what, that's the one thing that really was nothing like Motown really it wasn't Barry is, is a he's ruthless and he has his way and if it's not his way he can, but still he's beautiful I mean he knew what to do he knew how to get the right people to make things work at Motown I, he was not like that at all plus he was he's a very friendly kind of guy he can be cold, but he's a very personable kind of person. So it wasn't a good depiction, and I understand why he and, and Smokey were upset on that. But in terms of the Supremes, there was a lot of similarities. This is a song from the same period, Automatically Sunshine. Now, this is you uh, singing and sharing lead vocals, aren't you? Oh, maybe I am. I forgot. It's been so long ago. But uh, this was still when Gene Terrell was in the group, I think. And <laughs> so Robinson it's song. a Smokey Robinson because this was after Frank Wilson left and we needed someone in. Smokey was great. He said, I'll, I'll produce. So he produced the album Floyd Joy. And this is one of the songs that's on it. I get the impression from talking to Smokey Robinson that the atmosphere during recording mm -hmm. times in Motown mm -hmm. was like a party. It just seems like it was like, a party because you didn't single out the instruments and overlay them, did you? You, you it was all as a live, band. all it live was, as a band. It was it was just like coming to a party and recording the party, uh, and that was what was great because you had the musicians in there and the singers and the producers, and sometimes whatever happened there stayed on the record. Mary, you're a fascinating <laughs> person. I've been delighted to meet you, and thank you so much for thank for you. being my guest in conversation. Today. My pleasure. I need love, love to ease my mind. 
Supremes, of course, with You Can't Hurry Love. I recorded that conversation with the late Mary Wilson back in 2010 while she was touring Australia. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. abc.net.au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feidler. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.